Hello, Emmanuel Baptist Church family. This is Pastor Sean Cole, and I want to invite you to listen to this special uh, episode here on this CD related to evangelism and your children. How do we evangelize? How do we share the gospel with our children? Um, how do we look for signs and evidence of regeneration and salvation in our children? It's, it's given by our good friend, Dr. Artazerdia, who has been a speaker in our church. We've benefited from his ministry. That's about 15 minutes long, but I really encourage you to listen to this. I hope it's a, it's a, a blessing to you. It clarifies some things. It's a tool for you as a parent to understand how to share the gospel with your child, with your teenager. Please listen to Dr. Artazerdia as he answers the question about children and evangelism. What are some tools for sharing the gospel without the traditional sinner's prayer? The traditional sinner's prayer is this. You want to become a Christian? Repeat this prayer after me. Okay? And of course, I've been doing this long enough. If you put me in a room with 50 children, I can get them all to repeat the sinner's prayer after about 30 minutes. That's not because I'm so good, uh, but I can get them to repeat a prayer. Now, let me just come at this a little bit anecdotally before we get more specific. And I know I don't do this often, so just indulge me a bit. I grew up attending an Arminian church. Buses came around the neighborhood to pick up children, and my neighbor asked me to get on the bus. I got on the bus. People there loved Jesus Christ. They were driven, the church was. They were driven by the desire to see people brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, through the process of my own spiritual evolution, I have never, ever questioned the motives of the ministry there. I went forward at a meeting at summer camp when I was 10 years old. Why? Because nobody else did, and I felt bad for the preacher. <laughs> he did his message, and at the end, he did the typical altar call and invited people to go, and nobody came. And, you know, the pianist just kept doing her thing, you know. And, 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 and come on, come on. Nobody's coming. I'm 10 years old. And nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. And finally he said, if you want to be a real man, in fact, the word he used at that time is, if you want to be a he-man, some of you are old enough to know what that means. It's like saying you want to be a real stud, you'll come forward and accept Jesus. So, as not to allow my masculinity as a Hispanic man to in any way be questioned... I was the first one out of my seat, boom, right up there. At the prompting of a well-motivated older gentleman, I dutifully repeated a prayer, at the conclusion of which I was assured, you are a Christian now, do not ever doubt your salvation. But I was not a Christian, I was decisionized. I did not understand my guilt before God. I did not, therefore, understand the work of Jesus on the cross. So how can a person exercise saving faith when, one, he has no idea why he needs to be saved, and two, he has no sense of why Jesus is the right object in whom to place his faith? I went to church for a couple of years after that, principally because that's where all of my dearest friends went, and then eventually stopped going altogether. When I was 20 years old, and I won't go into all the details now, when I was 20 years old, everything that was important to me was shattered to pieces. And it was right around that time a friend called me and said, uh, Art, why don't we go back to church? 
he had been away himself, and, and so he did. And it was during those days, sitting under the college pastor at this church, who was a faithful expositor of the Word of God, it was during those days that I realized why I needed a Savior, who this Savior was, and what He had done to save sinners like me. Now, friends, I cannot point to a moment in time as I think about my conversion. I could not tell you. I cannot even point to a specific day. All I know is that somewhere in the third year of my, my third year of college, in the springtime of my junior year, I found myself repenting of my sin and trusting in Jesus Christ to save me. I do remember standing up at a college retreat and declaring that I was bound and determined to follow Jesus Christ. But of course you understand that didn't save me. It was merely a manifestation that I had been saved. So as I now think about making the gospel known to people, even my own children, and tonight I think what I'm going to do is keep going back and forth between talking to people and how it worked itself out with my own kids. Um, there are a couple of questions that I work hard to keep in mind. Four, in fact. Number one, does this person that I'm talking to, do my children, does this person understand what salvation presupposes? Does this person understand what salvation presupposes? You are a creature designed by a creator to whom you are presently accountable. That's where it has to begin. You are a creature designed by a creator to whom you are ultimately accountable. That's how Paul begins his sermon in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. This God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ruler of every single one of us. And he is the eternal judge that you, like all of us, will one day face in judgment. And just like you, just like me, we all stand before this God guilty. You have repeatedly broken his laws intentionally and unintentionally. By the way, little P.S., I never, ever, ever, ever spend any time trying to prove the existence of God. I just don't go there. I don't. I don't. I'm convinced in their heart of hearts and in their conscience they know there's a God. That's why they spend so much time trying to convince themselves that there isn't one. I make no effort to prove the existence of God. You know why? The Bible never does. The Bible never, ever gives us arguments to prove the existence of God. I just let the truth out of the bag and let it do its work. Does this person understand what salvation presupposes? You are a creature made by a creator to whom you are presently accountable. And by virtue of your choices in this life, you are guilty before him. That's the first question. I want to make sure that that peace is in place. Consequently, with my children, like I think I told you last week or a couple weeks ago, first catechism question they ever learned from us. Who made you? Over oh. Oh, who made you? Catherine, who made you? Jonathan, who made you? God made me. That's where it has to begin. Second, second question, does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessitates salvation? Does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessi necessitates salvation? We call people to salvation. But my dear brothers and sisters, you cannot afford to assume that people know what this means, especially given many of the distortions that are all around us related to this very issue. You say, friend, you need salvation. You need to be saved. And what they're thinking is, from what? 
And you need to belly up to the bar and say, from sin. You're not going to get anywhere if you find some other way. huh? You need to be saved from a bummer of a life. You need to be saved from unhappiness. You need to be saved from alcoholism. You need to be saved from sickness and disease. You need to be saved from unemployment or from poverty or from an unhappy marriage. This is something we have to make very, very plain in our gospel conversations. And friends, you can do this with affection in your voice. You can do it with kindness. You don't have to be mean-spirited about it. But it's something we need to be very plain about in our gospel conversations. From whom must you be saved? Did you hear that question? From whom must you be saved? And the answer is, not from the devil. The answer is, not from bad people. You need to be saved from God. The eternal condemnation that will be executed by him. Paul says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The gospel call in the book of Acts, flee from the wrath of God. So if you've laid out a portrait of God that doesn't include wrath, for what other reason would people come to Jesus Christ? You've got to invent other ideas. He'll make you happy. He'll satisfy you. He'll hold your family together, whatever it happens to be. So does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessitates salvation? Third, does this person understand God's provision of salvation? And since you hear that from me every single Sunday and every single Wednesday night, I'll just state it in one simple phrase and we'll move on. That means... The means of salvation is the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are not ready to be saved until they understand the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, where the Father pours out on Jesus all of his wrath against sin, propitiation, his burial, and on the third day, his resurrection. That is the means of salvation. Do they understand those gospel facts? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. And four, does this person understand the necessary response to this provision of salvation? What that means is you must call them to repent and believe. Those are the words used on the pages of the New Testament. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, not ask Jesus into your heart. What in the Sam Hill does that mean? I mean, even my little daughter would say to me, Dad, I mean, isn't isn't your heart about that big? What does it ask Jesus in your heart? Where do we come up with this stuff? Let's use the language that the Bible uses, friends. Don't ever be afraid to use the language that the Bible uses. Now, you may need to explain what the Bible language is, but figure out what it means and use the Bible language. Repent and believe. You must turn away from your sin. You must turn away from every other means of attempting to earn God's favor. And you must trust solely in the salvation accomplishments of Jesus Christ. This and this alone is what affects salvation in your life. Repentance and faith. Turning from sin, turning to Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Do they understand what perish means? And have eternal life. But as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. This is what the New Testament repeatedly calls people to. And beyond this... No method of ensuring this experience is established on the pages of the Scripture. 
Now, here's where we get into trouble. Because we want so badly to give people assurance of salvation, we have tied the experience of salvation to some external deed. Coming forward during an invitation. Raising your hand at the end of a sermon. Repeating a prayer after someone else. Signing a card. Moreover, what we want to be able to say, and and, and I mean well-intentioned, friends, but what we want to be able to say is 15 people were saved last month. But I think that in many cases, this has only served to give unbelievers a false sense of salvation because they've tied the experience of salvation to some external act. I went forward in 1993, even though I really never did understand the gospel and I've lived like a pagan ever since. See? I mean, good night. What did the Church of Jesus do before Charles Finney invented the altar call in the Second Great Awakening? How are people saved? I've had people ask me that very thing. You didn't give an altar call. How are people going to get saved? In the book of Acts, Peter preaches a gospel, and guess who the altar call comes from? Not the preacher, it comes from the congregation. What must we do? When the Spirit of God works, you don't have to give people a formula. So what happens? A crusade comes to town, an invitation is given, and the next day a friend says to me, Art, did you hear? 3,000 people were converted yesterday. And I say to him, with all due respect, brother, Portland would be an entirely different town if 3,000 people were authentically born again. And then a year later, a minuscule percentage shows even the slightest interest in attending church. Those people are not converted, friends. They've been decisionized. They've not been converted. So then what do we have to do? Where does that theology take us? I mean, we don't dare say that they're not converted. So we now have to create a third category of people. We have Christians, we have non-Christians, and we now have carnal Christians. People who are really Christians, but for all intents and purposes live like pagans. And nothing could be more contrary to the New Testament. Beloved, if a person is authentically converted... And tied to that is the praying of a prayer or any other kind of external expression. That prayer is not what saved them. What saves them is their faith alone in Jesus Christ. That prayer, assuming it is genuine, is not faith itself. It is merely a manifestation of the faith that has compelled it. The only external act that we call people to is baptism. Read the sermons in the book of Acts. Come believe in Jesus, be baptized. Not as a means of contributing to their salvation, but as their public expression of identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And when someone says, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but they refuse to be baptized, it's a pretty good indication that they've not yet been genuinely converted. I'm not saying that there are not Christians out there who don't know that they ought to be baptized. I'm sure there are many like that. What I'm saying is when a person knows they should and refuses to, I think we're looking at someone who probably has not been authentically born again. There is no such thing as an unbaptized Christian on the pages of the New Testament. 
So what I'm trying to tell you, friends, is it isn't your job to grant the experience of the assurance of salvation. It's your job to make clear the gospel and the appropriate response to it. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And then you take those people to the Bible and show them what the Bible says with regard to the fact that they've now repented from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to tell you, beloved, is let God grant them assurance. Because if God grants them assurance, you won't need to keep doing it every three months. Let God grant them. God will. God will. Now, as parents, and for those of you who are not parents, um, cut us a little bit of slack here. As parents, you see, our difficulty is we want to relieve our children of all anxiety. We don't want them wondering, am I really a Christian or not? Am I really a Christian or not? But you see, Christians in earlier generations understood much better than we that the experience of having that anxiety relieved by God via His Word is far more transformational than any quick assurance we may give to them. Let them stew. Let them struggle. And let God be the one who grants them assurance. He loves them far more than we do. So we talk to our children all the time about the gospel. Some, sometime I'd, li- I'd love to spend a Saturday, uh, part of a Saturday, talking about how to do family devotions. Uh, uh, we talk with our children. And, and you, you can ask Missy. She lived with our family for an extended period of time. She was all a part of it. Every night after dinner, we'd get up on the bed or get up on the couch. We would talk about the gospel all the time. We would sing the gospel. We would pray together. This is what the gospel is. This is what, how you must respond to it. And then when by and by our kids would come and say, Daddy, I, I, I want to be a Christian, what I would say is, you know what, honey, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection? Yes, I am. Well, honey, let's look at what the Bible says about the people who believe in Jesus. And we would look up these passages, maybe over a few nights together. And I would pray right there with them, Lord, please help Catherine to see that she's a Christian. Please help Jonathan to see that he's a Christian. And then I would say to them, you know what, honey? When you become a Christian, you need to be baptized, don't you? And with both of them, when they eventually said, Dad, I'm a Christian. They said, I need to be baptized. I said, why do you need to be baptized? Because if I don't, I'm being disobedient to Jesus. Now, at what point in the entire process were they converted? I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue. I remember Catherine coming to us one night, having read a particular psalm, absolutely convicted to her core that she was guilty before God because she'd she'd lied, and it was a psalm about lying. At what point in that process was she converted? I don't know. What I do know, beloved, is that God's grace always evidences itself. And what's more, mom and dad, what you need to keep in mind is that very few people are converted in an instant. So let the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, do its work. And also keep in mind that a person may in fact be converted before having absolute assurance of it. 
So these four questions govern my thinking. Does this person understand what salvation presupposes? Does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessitates salvation? Does this person understand God's provision of salvation? And does this person understand the necessary response to this provision of salvation? And by the way, not every person is in need of the same amount of explanation regarding these questions. For example, somebody may come from a very well-taught, conservative Roman Catholic background. They may have some of these pieces already in place. I need to know they understand the answers to them. I need to figure out where they are through the process of talking with them. Um, not have a prepackaged set in mind that I've got to take you through all of these steps. I just want to know that they can, um, that, that I'm getting the proper responses to those four big ideas. Okay. So, mom and dad, what you want to be do what you, what you want to be doing all the time is talking about the gospel over and over and over and over again. You want to be singing the gospel. You want to be doing that all the time, and let the gospel do its work. And don't be so concerned to relieve your anxiety that you want to be quick to relieve theirs. <laughs> 